0: SCP-6500 Inevitable Part 3 The SCP universe faces extinction in one form or another relatively often, but there are a couple of things that make this instance a little different. For one, normal humans will be practically unaffected and life will continue on for most as it always has. Secondly, the principal ways that the foundation has found to stop this event is through the collection of various powerful artifacts, each one of which must be obtained through a ritualistic quest. We've looked at two of these quests, or paths, so far, the warrior and the mage, and there's two more to go. Let's take a look now at the third path, the clerics. The path of the cleric involves the search for an unknown device of divine provenance, supposedly capable of accessing an untold number of realms. The idea is that the usage of this device would halt 6500 for essentially ever as it dealt with all the anomalous energy from the linked realities. The path of the cleric is titled Kigare a Japanese term referring to a state of uncleanliness or defilement, linked to the Shinto religion. The state of kigare can be caused by any contact with death, childbirth, disease, or other conditions or crimes, and the individual must be cleansed through purification rites. Unlike the first two paths, our starting location is not sloth's pit but rather Mount Ibuki, the tallest mountain in Shiga prefecture in Japan. Our protagonist is a wandering Buddhist monk in his forties named Kaito Iguchi. Kaito comes from a multi-generational lineage of Buddhist monks, but he chose to eschew the temple life, instead taking the open sky as his temple. He begged for charity from the locals and communities he passed through, often staying in homes for a night or two before moving on again. His duties take him from one end of Japan to the other, sometimes multiple times per year, and often involve traveling to out-of-the-way places such as a dirt trail up the side of Mount Ibuki. Since he guessed it was several hours past midday, he leans his shakujo, a traditional Buddhist staff with metal rings, against a tree and sat down for lunch. The meal consisted of a few onigiri, balls of rice wrapped in dried seaweed and in this case filled with smoked fish. He looks out over the edge of a nearby cliff at the nearby lake Biwa, but a sudden shift in the wind brings on the smell of rotting leaves and wet earth. After his meal, he grabs his staff and continues up the mountain path for another hour, finally reaching the base of a steep stone staircase framed by a large stone torii gate, traditionally found at the entrance of a Shinto shrine. He steps through the water and lichen-stained gate and began to climb the stairs, which were covered in leaves and surrounded by a close-knit network of trees. At the top of the stairs he finds a shattered wooden gate hanging open, having recently been struck with incredible force. Kaito grips his staff as he steps towards it, but two brilliant orange lights fly past him, causing him to jump back. The two lights, Hitodama spirits, flit between the trees as they retreat from the shrine. They are said to be the souls of the dead that have recently separated from their bodies, with their name literally meaning human soul. Kaito turns back to the gate and begins to chat the Amitabha Sutra, one of the Buddhist scriptures, to help guide the two souls to the pure lands. Beyond the gate is a small courtyard paved with stones, surrounded by the remains of a dilapidated traditional wooden fence. Three abandoned temple buildings lay beyond the courtyard, the remnants of what was once a shrine to the resident Kami of Mount Ibuki, one of the Shinto gods. Kaito steps across the courtyard until he stands in front of the shattered sliding door leading into the central temple building. Inside he finds only leaves, but could hear strange, garbled sounds coming from the direction of the inner courtyard. He proceeds to climb up the withered wooden staircase in the back of the temple finding a panel on the upper floor that leads to the tiled roof. Standing on the roof of the temple building, Kaito could see a mist hanging over the courtyard that trailed up the mountainside beyond it. He approaches the edge of the roof and looks down, finding two bodies laid out on the pavestones, a young man and a middle-aged woman. The corpses had each suffered from severe blunt trauma to their torsos and heads, with blood drenching the stones around them. Crouching over the bodies was a large figure with wild, knotted hair, horns curling up from its forehead, discolored, inhumanly red skin, and tusks growing from its lips. This was clearly an oni, a terrible kind of Japanese spirit. And its face was covered in blood from consuming the woman's body. It stood tall enough that its head would have brushed against the ceiling of any country house, with shoulders so wide that it would have little trouble tackling a water buffalo. Suddenly, it dropped the woman's arm it was chewing on and looked up towards the roof, greeting Kaido. It wiped its mouth on its arm and asked Kaido if he could come back in an hour as it's just trying to enjoy its meal. Since they're old friends, certainly he would grant this small request. Its Japanese was rough, with an underlying growl to each syllable, but Kaito understood well enough. He refused the request, telling the oni to stand clear from the dead. The oni responded that it doesn't think it will, and reached for a long iron bar nearby with a handle made of bone and wrapped in rough-hewn leather, half as long as Kaito. Kaito in turn brought out two paper charms from his belt pouch, attaching one to the tip of his staff and speaking an incantation that caused it to wrap tightly around the shaft. He asks the oni to stay its hand, as there doesn't need to be a conflict today. He'll see to the dead, and the oni can go back to its realm. The oni refuses, calling Kaito an insect, and asking him why he's even here since this is not a buddhist temple. Kaito responds that peace for the dead and for all things brings him here, and he brings no weapons but tools. The oni says that even as they speak with one another, the weird and wonderful are falling apart, as realms are fading, magic is failing and kami are abandoning their temples. Kaito tells it that the kami of this shrine has not abandoned it, and he will not abandon his congregation, referring to the two victims. The oni remarks that Kaito doesn't smell as if he's from this area, so they are not his congregation, but Kaito says that all the people of Japan are his congregation, calling the oni a murderer. The oni is not phased by the death of two more humans, however, as humans have filled these lands a thousand thousand times their number since the reign of Nobunaga, scouring the seas dry of life, burning harsh chemicals in the air, and heaping landfills with refuse. Clearly neither are going to back down, so the oni rushes toward Kaito and swings its club, which he ducks underneath. The oni begins to tear down the roof underneath Kaito, so he leaps off as the oni continues to charge at him. After the oni swings its club again, Kaito dodges and touches the end of his staff against the metal bar, causing a bell to sound across the courtyard and a flash of light to erupt. The iron club rebounded as though it had struck a boulder, and the oni stepped back in pain, shaking out both of its hands. The Oni says that Kaito has learned some new things since it last saw him, and begins to remind Kaito of its name before being cut off. Kaito says that it doesn't matter what the Oni's name is, as he doesn't care to know about the Oni, and he will not warn it again to leave this realm. The Oni isn't intimidated, however, and leaps into the air, bringing the club smashing down. Kaito dodges the blow once again, striking his staff into the Oni's shin, producing another flash of light and a loud crunching sound. The Oni grunts in pain and drops the club as it clutched its left leg. Kaito walked towards it as it began to reach for the club again, but Kaito loudly pronounced a kotodama, essentially a verbal incantation, causing the courtyard to be filled with a celestial ringing. The club was hit by a force, sending it flying across the courtyard, and a great, pained sigh escaped from the oni's mouth. The oni says that when magic fails, the realms will empty, and they will all die, all of the yokai and the children of the dark places. Kaito's words will lose their meaning, and those charms will be nothing but paper. It asks him what purpose he will serve then. Instead of responding, Kaito rushes forward and strikes the oni in the forehead with an open palm, attaching the other charm he had prepared to its flesh. Another bell chimed across the courtyard as the oni wailed and smoke poured from its mouth. A bright white light proceeds to consume its form, and when it finally dims, there's nothing left but scorch marks on the pavestones. The metal club wavered like heat shimmering on desert sands before also fading away, along with the mist surrounding the shrine. Kaito takes a deep breath, shaking with adrenaline, and he touches the charm wrapped around his staff, causing it to crumble to dust. After catching his breath, he approaches the two victims, wondering what had brought them here. He turned to the desiccated shrine and bowed whispering a prayer of thanks to the kami whose house it had been. He tells the kami that if he had the time, he would repair the damage to its house, but it appears as if they have company. He turns his head to the corner of the nearby damaged temple building and calls out, saying that they should come out if they want to talk. A young woman wearing combat body armor and carrying an assault rifle steps out. He asks her in Japanese who she is and what does she want. She responds, also in Japanese, that her name is Fumiko Tanaka, and Kaito guesses that she represents the foundation. He responds in English, telling her that her Japanese is terrible, and asks what she wants. She is quite surprised that he knows of the foundation, and he says that the jailers don't have a strong presence in Japan but it's obvious if one pays attention. Due to his usage of the term jailers, she surmises that he's with the serpent's hand, but he says that he's merely familiar with them and they've offered support in the past. Fumiko says that she's been sent here to assess Kaito's effectiveness in helping with a vital mission. Kaito says nothing for a moment, before laughing, saying that he doesn't work for the foundation, since they would've captured that oni, studied it, and eventually allowed for its escape to plague more of the people here. Fumiko, despite being American, has heard of the oni, and tells Kaito that he'd be surprised at the foundation's capabilities. She tells him that there's a situation they've come across that could use his experience, and he allows her to explain. After she speaks for several minutes, Kaito sighs and says that he will come with her, after attending to the dead. He proceeds to straighten the bodies so that they lay as serenely as they could, reciting another bit of scripture and cleaning the blood from the faces. After finishing, he turns back to Fumiko and tells her to call her helicopter, as they must hurry to Ine, a fishing village in Kyoto prefecture. The helicopter drops the two of them off at a nearby field near the shore of the Sea of Japan. Fumiko calls in a boat to take them to Ine, a village with many buildings built in a traditional style with small built-in docks for boats serving as the first floor and the living quarters above. Kaito asks Fumiko if she's sure that the bodies will be treated with respect, and she assures him that they will making sure that their families are notified once they've been identified. The village is unusually quiet, as normally the villagers would be cleaning their late afternoon catches or working on their boats. They parked their boat into an empty space by a dock, and Fumiko explains that the foundation evacuated the village with a story concerning a possible terrorist plot. Kaito asks her where the military and police one would expect in such a situation are, but she simply smiles and shrugs, as the driver of the boat leaves the two alone in the village. She assures Kaito that they'll have backup if they need it, but he tells her that that will not be necessary. This strikes her as rather overconfident, but he says that He has been defending his people from yokai and oni for all of his adult life, mostly alone, so he would say he's at the just about right level of confidence. As they walk through the streets, Fumiko says that over the last eight days, six people have died suddenly, each from suffocation with no marks of strangulation or drowning. Kaito asks if the victims were found in their beds, but despite all of the deaths occurring at night, some were found in their homes and others were found on the street, with no witnesses. Kaito responds that it sounds like a yamachichi, but not quite, a yokai that steals the breath from sleeping people. They usually live in the mountains however, and when a victim is attacked, they die the next day. They are exceedingly rare as well, and even when one is present in an area, it wouldn't hunt this frequently. Kaito himself has never encountered one, only having read about them in an old book. He notes to himself that when Fumiko asked about the creature, she sounded disinterested, which doesn't make sense as it presumably was why he was called here. The two head over to the home of the most recent victim, with Kaito removing his sandals at the entryway. When Fumiko doesn't take off her combat boots, she says that no one lives here currently and it's not exactly expedient to remove them and put them back on. Kaito simply tells her to stay outside then, and steps inside. The floors are polished pine with a small living room featuring an old tv sitting on a dresser and a modern bathroom. In the kitchen, he could feel where the victim's life had ended an emanation coming from the corner where the resident had fallen propped up against the wooden cabinet and the small washing machine he proceeded to clasp his hands and bow reciting a prayer he startled however by a noise at the window sighting a furry body slide off the windowsill and out of sight He rushes back outside and slips on his sandals, giving chase around the corner as Fumiko begins to follow him. Whatever it is, though, is quick and he barely catches another glimpse of it as it slips into an alley and out of sight. Fumiko raises her assault rifle but Kaito pushes it back down, telling her that it's gone now. He walks to the end of the path between the houses and looks out on a small, well-kept park. LED lights flicker throughout the park and on the other side is a forest covering a rising hill. He started to step towards the park when he's suddenly struck in the back by something small and terribly dense. His face collides with the asphalt and his vision goes black for a moment as he tastes blood in his mouth. He eventually manages to turn to look at Fumiko, finding a yokai crouching over her prone body. Kaito struggled to climb to his feet as his vision swam and nausea racked throughout his body. He tried to speak but only managed a shuddering cough. Suddenly, three shots rang out and the yokai reeled backwards, collapsing to the ground. Fumiko gasped for breath, moaned, and then sat up as Kaito looked down the alleyway to see several Foundation soldiers approaching with the rifles drawn. Kaito proceeded to check that Fumiko was breathing steadily before forcing her to stay seated with a hand on her shoulder. He then turned to the nearest soldier and swept his legs out from under him with his staff, followed by kicking him in his solar plexus and smashing a second soldier in the jaw. The third soldier raised his rifle and aimed it at Kaito, but Fumiko shouted at him to stand down, help the other two up, and retreat. She then turned to Kaito and stopped him from pursuing the soldiers, telling him that they were just protecting her. He brushed her hands away with a surprising strength and turned to the yokai, the Yamachichi. It resembled a toddler-sized possum, slightly anthropomorphized, with shockingly blue eyes. It was shaking, with brownish-red blood pouring from the three bullet holes in its torso, and Kaito touched its chest just as its breathing stopped. He tells Fumiko that it was only acting on instinct, with no malice, but Fumiko asks if they were just supposed to let her die. He says that she would have reincarnated, while it will not, since there are no prayers for a yokai, no hells or cycle, just oblivion. She asks him why she feels so strong, and Kaito explains that when a Yamachichi is interrupted from taking someone's breath, it's said that the person will not only not die the next day, but will have increased vigor and extended life. He proceeds to untie his cloth knapsack and lay it across the Yamachichi's body, and she asks what he would have done. He responds that he would have incapacitated it and banished it from the realm, as it was just a poor beast. The sound of slow applause comes from the nearby tree line, and a tengu emerges, a dangerous bird-like yokai wearing leather armor and carrying a long spear. The tengu laughs that Kaito is performing funeral rites for a yamachichi, and asks if he wants to recite a prayer. Kaito responds that there would be no point, as its spirit has gone to wherever yokai travel to when they die. The tengu responds that he watched out for the little thing, and he was good company. Kaito says that the Yamachichi killing six people in the last few weeks is uncharacteristic of them, and asks if the tengu was spurring him on. The tengu denies it asking why someone such as him would want the random deaths of fishermen. The yamachichi was merely famished after so long away from this world, and the tengu doesn't even know what he was doing in this area. Kaito doesn't believe him, however, saying that their kind are all too fond of mischief, which usually ends in the deaths of innocents. The tengu laughs at the victims being called innocent, however, saying that humans foul everything they touch, leaving no room for yokai anymore. No stories are told of the yokai's might, and no games can be found in the forests, just endless humans with their televisions and their cars corrupting the land. He says that humans are kagare, defilement. Kaito responds that that doesn't mean they should die, but the tengu says that if kaito believes in the wheel, then they'll just be reincarnated with no harm done. Kaito asks the tengu to leave their realm in peace, as he doesn't want any more violence. The tengu shrugs and says that the girl's soldiers killed his friend, so blood must be necessary to balance the insult. Kaito looked to see Fumiko picking up her assault rifle as he wrapped another charm around his staff. He nodded to her to fall back, but she shakes her head, sighting down the rifle. Unfortunately, the tengu was rushing down from the sky towards Kaito after performing an inhumanly high leap. He managed to dodge it and block the spear thrust with his staff, the charm letting off a bell chime and a bright flash of light. The spear thrust was shunted to the right towards Fumiko, who barely managed to avoid it. She followed by firing a burst from her rifle at the tengu, but he merely spun his spear, deflecting the rounds into the ground, chiding her for the effort. The creature continued to spin the spear, bringing the blunt end down in a blur towards Fumiko's skull. Kaito managed to call out an incantation which deflected the spear into her body armor instead, striking her between the shoulder and head. She grunted in pain and stumbled backwards against the wall of a house. Kaito shouted at the Tengu that it was time for him to leave and swung his staff, colliding with the creature's beak. There was another flash of light, and the Tengu flew backwards, making a shrill cry of pain. Kaito followed this up with a blow to the tengu's spear arm, snapping his wrist and causing him to scream in agony. The tengu cries out that he hopes that Kaito burns in all the hells as he just wanted to see the world again. Soon there will be nowhere to go home to and he's sending him to oblivion. Kaito stood over the tengu with a banishing charm in hand and asks the yokai what he means. The tengu says that magic is fading, the realms are withering, and soon there will be no home, so they must come here. Kaito softly tells him that they are not welcome, to which the tengu responds that omoguchi was right about you people. Kaito has never heard of such an individual, but the tengu says that omoguchi is their patron who supported them coming here again after so long away. He warned them that people like Kaito would never let the yokai return to Japan. The tengu tried to strike at Kaito with his good arm, but Kaito easily steps aside and smashes that one as well, demanding the tengu tell him where this man is located. The tengu isn't going to betray the only man who understands their needs, however, and tells Kaito to rot and simmer in the filth of his fellow humans. He tells Kaito not to look to the realms when his arts no longer work. Knowing he wasn't going to get any more info from the tengu, Kaito proceeded to gently place the banishing charm onto the creature's chest, sending him away from this realm and leaving only smoke behind. Afterwards, Kaito removes the charm from his staff, wondering why it seemed less potent now than in years past. He turns to Fumiko and asks her if she's alright, but she doesn't think anything's broken. He then asks her what she knows about this fading of magic that the tengu mentioned, and after hesitating for a moment, she shakes her head and says that she doesn't know anything. He doesn't believe her, however, telling her that just now, and at the temple, his charms were not as effective as they once were, losing their power after only a few strikes. Fumiko had assumed that the staff itself was anomalous, but he says it's merely steel, and the charms are the things that hurt the yokai and the kododama. She asks about the spells he speaks out loud, but he says they're not spells, they are gifts from the bodhisattvas and arhats that empower him with certain abilities, tools instead of spells. He does admit that there are a few legends concerning a monk's staff having powers, including one monk who used his staff to split the earth and reveal a spot for a well to be dug, as a village was suffering terribly from drought. She says it's a neat story, but not terribly helpful in this situation, causing him to laugh. He then asks her about the man the tengu mentioned, Omoguchi, and since the tengu used the Sama honorific, he must be someone of importance. She calls it in to get more info while Kaito stares at the covered body of the Yamachichi, trying to clear his mind as he struggled to accept the responsibility of this death. Finally, she taps him on the shoulder and informs him that there's a man in Kyoto named Kenta Omaguchi. It's not a common last name, and he's the CEO of Transstar Energies, so he's their best bet. Sometime later, Kaito and Fumiko are in an armored SUV driving into Kyoto, and he asks her what exactly they're doing. She says that a forward operating team has secured the company's headquarters and evacuated everyone except for Omaguchi, under the cover story of a security breach connected to the terrorist attack in Ine. Omaguchi is being delayed by some agents so that the two of them can speak with him. It's not as subtle an operation as Fumiko would usually like, but it wasn't her decision. If someone is connected to the rising incidents of yokai in the mortal realm, then it needs to stop, quickly. Normally the yokai are solitary, spread out, and hidden, and Kaito has never had to deal with three yokai killing people in the same day. Fumiko says that this could easily be a significant threat to normalcy which Kaito scoffs at, saying that these things have existed since before Japan had people living on it, so what is normal? The foundation is always trying to impose their own limited views on what the natural world consists of. Fumiko shifted in her seat and tells him that she empathizes with his opinions, but too many people are dying now and others are going to start wondering, likely leading to a panic. Kaito nods and eventually agrees that the panic would be devastating, but perhaps it's time to start informing people of the world they live in. Fumiko just shrugs and says that that's above her pay grade, and the two continue driving through the city, looking out at the way that Kyoto combined both ancient temples and modern businesses. If this omaguchi is communing with yokai, there's no better place than this where the past and present are intertwined. Fumiko asks Kaito about something the tengu had said, when he had called humans kegare, a word she's not familiar with. Kaito says that its literal meaning is defilement or uncleanliness, but in shinto it also means spiritual corruption, or the breeding of disease on the level of the soul. It's not a moral corruption like sin, or the staining of one's spirit from one's action, but instead it's a natural reaction to amoral, unnatural forces. One might seek forgiveness for one's wrongdoing and yet still have kagare. It needs to be remedied by the people responsible through purification rituals. A common allegory is that a still pool can become stagnant. And a source of infection or breeding ground for plague-bearing insects, but running water is clear and pure. The tengu was calling human society a stagnant pool. Fumiko sat silently for a moment, pondering this, and then asked what the purification of an entire society would look like. Kaito tells her that in the tengu's mind a tsunami, would probably be appropriate. Fumiko lets out a small gasp before stifling it and asks if a yokai would be capable of such a thing. Kaito very much doubts that they could cause a literal tsunami, but possibly a metaphorical one that wiped the slate clean, since there are many realms beyond this one and they are filled with many yokai. Both the Oni on the mountain and the Tengu mentioned that the realms were fading due to magic faltering. And although Kaito doesn't know exactly what they meant, if all of the yokai were forced to come here, it would be a big problem. They finally arrive in front of the headquarters, but there hasn't been any word from the forward team since the building was evacuated and they said they were going to secure Omaguchi, which doesn't bode well. Standing in front of the building, Fumiko calls a nearby site director, informing them of the situation and requesting a full tactical team here as soon as possible. She then tells Kaito that they'll need to wait for reinforcements, but Kaito begins to step towards the lobby, saying that he is going to speak with this man now. She rushes over to try and stop him, but he tells her that he is not going to enter this building behind a squad of her professional soldiers, he's going in now. She has no choice but to follow him in, telling the SUV driver to stay there and update the team when they arrive. The two enter the empty lobby and approach the security station. Kaito notes that this station hasn't been abandoned for long, and there's no one milling about outside, questioning Fumiko if she's sure they evacuated the entire building. She shrugs and says that that was twenty-five minutes ago, and it's after nine o'clock, so it's not unusual. The transponders for the forward team all show them on the top floor, in the executive suite, so Kaito approaches the elevator with a security badge from the station. She tells him that backup is another fifteen minutes out, and asks him his plan. He responds that he's going to talk with Omaguchi, find out his connection to the oni, and find her team. When she says that he makes it sound very simple, he tells her that everything is simple if you look at it the right way, and she should let go of her fear, as all things must end eventually. She would rather that they didn't end tonight, however. They take the elevator to the top floor, with Fumiko stepping out first with her rifle raised. Kaito followed, but stops when he looks up at the tall ceiling, noting that there's a large torii gate in the center of the room, which required one to pass under it to enter the executive suite. He tells Fumiko that this is an actual torii, not a decoration, and he can't think of any example of one being moved into a building such as this. In Shinto, they serve a function in the open air of separating the mundane from the sacred, and although he doesn't think much on the concept of heresy, he thinks this is close. Stepping into the large executive suite, it turns out to be another lobby with a receptionist desk and another corridor leading to the inner offices of CFOs and CEOs. The room was empty, with no sign of the forward team. The transponders show them to be in the CEO's room, so they continue down the corridor until reaching the large double doors marked as Omaguchi's office, and opened them. Kaito gasped as Fumiko rushed in and cursed, finding the remnant of the five-member team eviscerated and bludgeoned into almost unrecognizable shapes. Several had their heads torn off, and the smell of blood and fecal matter was strong, Kaito's vision swam as he looked at the scene, until a middle-aged Japanese man in an expensive suit walked out from a personal bathroom, wiping his hands on a red-streaked towel. Kaito asked the man in Japanese what this was, but he responded in English, saying that they were corporate spies, no doubt, or terrorists. He proceeds to throw the bloody towel into a trash can. And then walks in front of the desk, leaning against it. Fumiko asks him if he is Kenta Omaguchi, before cursing again and asking what he did to these men. He smiles and responds that they came in waving about these guns, and he was afraid for his life. Kaito asks if he killed them with his bare hands, and Omaguchi says that he did, as they did not show him proper respect. Fumiko points her rifle at him, but Kaito whispers to her that they need to find out what happened here. Omaguchi tells them that he is a king and he doesn't answer to vagabond priests or paramilitary agents of shadowy organizations. Kaito was about to ask him what he meant when suddenly the man's suit began to rip as his flesh grew transforming into a a two-and-a-half meters tall horned Oni warrior. The shed human skin slapped against the tiled floor, spilling blood in a pool around him. He now had bright blue skin, three horns protruding from his brow, and a mouth full of tusks. His eyes shone red, and he wore a coat of oily green scales, like armor. Kaito noted the light fleeing from the room, replaced with a mist rising from the floor as the air grew colder. The oni reached to his left, pulling out a large weapon from the shimmering air, asking Kaito who he is to invade his domain and demand answers. Kaito proceeds to place another charm on his staff, and asks the oni what his name is. The oni responds that his name is Shuten Doji, a famous yokai, and Kaito leaves his mouth hanging in surprise, as the oni laughs that Kaito has heard of him. Fumiko is about to ask him another question when the oni smashed his weapon down in front of her, sending out a shockwave that Kaito deflected with his staff. Shuten Doji cried out that there would be no more questions and then went on the offensive against Kaito. Kaito uttered an incantation, causing the weapon to smash against the floor and send chips of tile flying into Kaito's body. He retaliated by swinging his staff into the oni's forearms with a heavy thud. The oni growled and reached for Kaito, wrapping his large hand around Kaito's outstretched palm. A brilliant flash of light erupted from his clenched fist— splashing blue blood across Kaito's chest and causing Shuten-dōji to gasp and pull back his maimed hand. Three fingers had been crushed by the blast, and a cut was rent into the large blue palm. Kaito threw down the spent charm while Shuten-dōji dropped his weapon and clutched his hand, shocked and angry that Kaito would dare strike him. Kaito rushes forward and plunges his staff into the broken tile in front of the oni, resulting in the charm on the staff shining brightly and sending out a cacophony of chiming bells. Shuten-doji clutches at his eyes with his good hand and gasps a curse in Japanese. While blinded, Kaito leans in, placing two more charms directly onto the oni's body, both of which erupt with light and form a series of chains that wrap themselves around him. The chains tie Shuten-doji to the floor, and he gurgles as one of them wraps around his thick neck. Kaito removes his staff from the floor, causing the used charm to crumble off of it, and he looks down at Fumiko, who was struggling to get back to her feet after the blast had thrown her against a wall. He asks her if she's hurt and pulls her to her feet, but she doesn't think anything was broken, although her head is ringing. Kaito is looking at the small crater she had left in the drywall from her impact, at which point she turned to notice it as well, gasping. It would seem that the myth regarding the Yamachichi had been true, as she was stronger than a normal human now shuten was continuing to try and flex against the chains, but this only caused them to wrap tighter around him. Kaito stood over him and asked him what he was doing here, since Kaito had heard that he was dead. shuten just dismisses this as a human story. Fumiko asks who he is, and Kaito explains that shuten is the self-proclaimed king of the oni, who once caused many deaths in this area. Legend has it that his head was severed from his body by a famous samurai, to which shuten says that this was true, but he still lived because his magic is strong. Kaito asks him why he's been masquerading as a human, and he responds that it's simply about power, as he needed resources and influence to guide his fellow yokai back to the waking world. Kaito then asks about the realms fading but the oni merely tells him to ask his colleague. Kaito looks at Fumiko, who is shaking her head. shuten continued, saying that she knows, and they all do. They've been trying to round up the yokai for months, as they know why the yokai are here. Magic is fading, and he asks Kaito what would he have them do. Kaito turns and asks Fumiko if he's speaking the truth, that the foundation has been hunting yokai. She responds that of course they have, because that's what the foundation does, they contain the anomalous. Shuten then says that this begs the question of why they needed Kaito. Fumiko says that he already told him that they couldn't find what was killing the people in Ine, so they needed someone with more expertise. This causes the oni to break out in laughter again, telling Kaito that they didn't need him, they needed that, as he looks directly at Kaito's staff. Kaito is confused, but Fumiko raises her rifle and points it at Shuten doji, although Kaito quickly grabs it and points it away, demanding that Fumiko tell him what the oni means. Fumiko turns away, telling Kaito that she doesn't know what he's talking about but Kaito doesn't believe her. She turns back, angry, about to respond, when she touches her ear and speaks softly enough that Kaito couldn't understand her. She thanks whoever ever on the other end of the call, and then tells Kaito that they did want his help, but they also want the staff. Kaito doesn't understand why though, as it's just a memento from his family, and they could buy one fairly easily. Fumiko sighs and begins to rub her temples, telling him that they couldn't buy one like that one. His is an anomaly, as they came across some documentation in the archives that implied it was magic with a capital M. It's much more than a staff. It's a key to the realms and dimensions, to endless thaumaturgical energy. It's a lightning rod for the divine and it's the real reason that Kaito banishes yokai so easily, not his charms or spells. Kaito doesn't believe her, but she asks him if he's ever met another oni hunter that was as effective as him, or if he just thought he was stronger than everyone else. Kaito can banish a spirit with ease that would take a squadron of soldiers and thaumaturges to take down, pointing at how easily he took down shuten doji, The oni laughs again, but not as loudly, and tells Kaito that it's true he's nothing special, as the staff is doing the hard work. Kaito stares at his staff as Fumiko continues, telling him that magic is failing and the anomalous is falling apart, as things they've known about for centuries are just ceasing to exist, with some of them causing a fair bit of chaos in their wake. She grips his shoulders and says that what isn't failing is him and his staff, as he's been fighting off demons for decades, and he's always succeeded because of that staff. Kaito whispers no, as his arms start to shake, but she says that this doesn't take away anything that he's done, as he's served his people well. Now he can do something about this entropy, with that staff being the linchpin. The oni starts laughing loudly again, telling Fumiko that he doesn't work for jailers, and to look at him as he's cracking under this new world he's discovered. Fumiko tells Shuten Doji to shut up, but he growls and the room grows darker, causing the walls to disappear and be replaced with red-hued mist and dying trees. He tells Kaito to look around, as the realms are dying, and the yokai will take their place in the waking world. Kaito turns just in time to see the chains dim and then split with a loud cracking sound before dissipating. shuten Doji backhands Fumiko into the mist and screams at Kaito that he will take his toy, eat his flesh, and his people will cover these islands like a flood. They will take better care of them than any human would once the humans are all dead. The oni roars and the mists enshroud them both. Kaito looks back towards the Tori gate, which now shone a dull red. They were no longer in the mortal realm, as the Tori gate had been a boundary not of the sacred, but of the otherworldly. The oni's weapon thrust out of the mist towards Kaito and he deflects it with the staff causing a bell to chime dimly in the distance. He then leapt up as the weapon swung for his feet, and while in midair he strikes the weapon with the staff, causing it to snap in two. Another bell chimed, louder and clearer this time. Shuten-Doji roared again, telling Kaito to just die already, but Kaito plunges into the mist while quietly reciting a poem. It reads... The flowing river waters bring all things to the sea. I too must go." The mists parted and the Oni snarled as he reached for Kaito with his hands, one whole and one maimed. Kaito twisted as he ran, slipping between the two monstrous hands, and struck the wet ground of the Oni realm with the staff. A bell chimed all around them and a white light engulfed the as blue-white flames swept across the ground and up his legs. The oni reared back, screaming and frantically batting at the flames, as Kaito swung his staff and struck him directly in the face. Blue-black blood splashed across Kaito, blinding him, while the shootin doji screamed in pain and lashed out desperately striking Kaito in the chest and sending him to the floor. When he finally managed to open his eyes a little, he saw light returning to the room and the walls of the office melting back into place. The half-caved-in head of Shuten-Doji was staring at him as shuddering breaths came from his throat and he struggled to speak. Suddenly the oni fixated on Kaito's face with his one good eye and groaned, I will not fade." His chest was then racked with violent coughing, causing more of the blue blood to spill from his lips. He managed a weak sigh before falling silent, and the light dimmed in his eyes. as it grew brighter in the room. Kaito looked away and gripped his staff across his chest, flying flat on his back. He felt a sharp pain stabbing into his side with each breath, and he tasted blood. He struggled to crane his neck to look at the staff, and thought to himself that the staff could have told him about its powers before now, as he could have used the help. Someone rushed over to him, and he barely recognized it as Fumiko as he slipped into unconsciousness. The after-action report tells us that the staff is now safe in Foundation containment, and is capable of opening doorways to other space-time constructs or dimensions. The staff can also be used to move one object or living organism from one spacetime construct to another. Other additional effects that have been recorded include radiation of heat and light, creating significant damage upon impact on anomalous beings known as oni or yokai, an anomalously high resistance to damage to its structure, and the ringing of a bell upon its activation. After retrieval of the staff, both the agent and the person of interest, Kaito, were injured and required medical care. Kaito had previously expressed severe reticence to work with the foundation, but during his recuperation, Fumiko was able to convince him to assist in the neutralization of scp-6500. His sole condition for assistance was that the object never leave his possession and that he would operate it under observation for any research or attempts to utilize its anomalous nature. The O5 council agreed to these conditions as long as he cooperated, and Fumiko was assigned as part of his security detail. A senior researcher then proposed using the staff to identify the source of the entropy caused by SCP-6500, given its abilities to manipulate space-time constructs. This is based on the theory that the source of 6500 is extra-dimensional, which has not yet been confirmed. Additionally, the researcher proposed utilizing the staff as a conduit for its anomalous energy to feed into the source of the entropy, thus diverting the further degradation of baseline reality's anomalous energy. The council approved the proposal, saying that Almost any action taken that can prevent the full devastation of the anomalous will be supported, as they will not let magic die. That's three different objects now that could conceivably stop SCP-6500 in its tracks and end the crisis, with one more to go. Any one of these could do the job, but I think, as we can all guess, it's not going to turn out to be that simple. We have only the path of the thief to go before continuing ahead into the scp-6500 file to find out how deep the rabbit hole goes.